Isn't having family a wonderful thing? You better, you, <laughs> you're like, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yes it is. How many of you have kids? I don't care how old they are. Do you have kids? Kids are wonderful things, aren't they? They are, they're a blessing from the Lord. Um, today, one of the things that I think is amazing is how technology is changing uh, so fast that there are certain things that our kids will never understand. Are you with me? They're never going to be able to, uh, uh, receiving mail, okay? They're never going to get it. They think you've got mail is, is something, you know, that was originally on AOL, you know, and, and they, they have no, I'm, I can remember my mailman's face from when I was a teenager because he brought me letters that girls had written me, okay? I was emotionally connected to that man, all right? I can still remember that guy. It was very important to me. How, how about the, the joy of being the first one to the telephone when it rang? Do you, does anybody remember that? Okay, the phone rang and all you heard was a stampede to see who got to it first, okay? And no one actually knew who it was that was calling, okay? When, when we go to the phone, 888, uh-uh, we don't answer it, or we hit, we hit answer and then hang up right away. And you know, you, Our kids are never going to know that. I mean, they're so, they, they don't think of a phone being hung on a wall, and you're tethered by a cord, okay? At first, the cord was this long, okay? And a parent came up with that because what a kid wanted to do was get away from everybody. So they invented the really long cords so that they could go down and sit on the basement steps and close the door and have their private conversations. Am I just the only one that, that thinks these things? It's the truth. Absolutely. Listen, this, I, and I, I can identify with this a little bit, but how about scratches on your favorite album? Your favorite album? Your favorite album? It took you at least twice before it even dawned on you where I was going with that, right? Uh, here's the one that I really relate to. How about when, the, when the, the player ate up your favorite cassette mixtape, and it's like six feet of, of cassette, and you're winding it up with a pencil that's in... You, you, I, I, you're, you're like literally, you're like, oh, oh, oh. And you recorded it off the radio and it was terrible anyway, but you're just, oh, it's got all my favorites on it, you know? The kids think they have a, a, a you know, just they, they've got the corner on all of this stuff. How about the reality of living without Siri and Google and Cortana? Who in the world is Cortana? That's what I want to know. I have no idea. Alexa? The kids now, they just throw out random questions into the air, and, and Alexa answers them. In the old days, we had to go look it up. We had to do that stuff. I, I was, I was at, uh, on a farm the other day, what used to be a farm, um, and, um, and now it's a wedding venue, and, and I was there, and and I, I saw the door open to the basement. I didn't see the sign until later that said, do not enter. But I went down into the, <clears throat> the lower level, and it, and it happened to be uh, the milking parlor. And, and 
the stanchions were still all there, and it was old. The stanchions were old, and, and a young lady that, that was uh, part of the family that owned the farm, I said, when was the last time cows were milked in this barn? And she goes, oh, it was a long time ago, like 10 or 20 years <laughs> oh, I, I, oh man, it was just, I, you can't even say anything to that. You just got to let it sit there. You know what I mean? One day she's going to remember that she did that, you know, and it'll come back to her. Um, but these experiences, one thing they do is they make me feel old. Uh, the other thing is it, it, it reminds me of things when I was growing up and I, and I, and I remember, I, I just, I feel like I'm in that Hoover Street house in, uh, in Janesville again. You know, I, I feel like a, a kid. I feel like uh, it gives me a lot of good feeling about my family and about my home. And I want to ask you the question, what is home to you? When I say home, what do you think of? Is it, is it a place where you go after work or after school and hang out because that's where your video game system is? Is it a place where you sleep at night? What is home ultimately to you? And I'd like to read to you this morning, and a lot of times I, I will tell the story from Scripture, but this, this, this particular Scripture, the story is written in such a way that I just want to read it to you. It's a, it's a big chunk of Scripture, but we're on this series of messages called Lost, and this one is the third in Jesus' um, three stories, and, and so I want to read it to you, and it's about three people that all belonged to the same family, okay? So it's from Luke chapter 15, if you brought your Bible, beginning at verse 11. Let me read, follow along as I read. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole land, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, you ne- and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What I want to do today is ask the same question of each of the members of this family. And the question is this, how can I, or in one case, how did I get home? And a lot of this depends on our definition of home. But family member number one that I'd like to look at this morning is the older son, the older brother. And the question is, how does the older brother, or how can the older brother get home? And you say, Pastor Kevin, did you not remember what you just read? The older brother never left home. And I want to contend this, that the older brother wasn't really home. Are you with me? Do you get what I'm saying? He wasn't really, his body was there, but his mind wasn't there. The older son, he's, he's overlooked. We don't hear anything about him until the prodigal returns. And it leads us to believe that everything must have been good between he and his father. But upon receiving the update that his brother is returned, he becomes angry and he refuses to participate in the celebration, effectively removing himself from the family. What would, it would seem that the family, the home is all back together when in fact it really isn't. And this guy, he becomes angry and his anger is directed in two specific ways that I want to touch on just for a second. The first direction of his anger was about his brother, right? He was angry about his brother because his brother squandered his his father's wealth and he really gets specific, okay? He gets more specific than Jesus gets in the text earlier. He said he squandered his wealth not on wild living, but on prostitutes. That's a that's man, that's that's a tough blow. He he tells really what it's all about. And so he is, he's saying, I'm angry about that. And then he's angry about his dad because he has slaved for his father without being celebrated. I believe the older brother appears to have been doing the right things for all the wrong reasons. And the return of the younger brother has exposed unfulfilled expectations that are in his heart, he says, you never did anything like, like this for me. 
Sorry about that. I kind of choked. He said, I didn't squander your wealth in wild living. Notice that. Now, I'm reading a little bit into this. He's saying he did it. What he's really saying is, I didn't do it. Huh? He's really saying, I didn't do that. In fact, he says, I didn't use a prostitute. Who is this really about? I think it's more about the older brother than it is about the younger brother. He's simply using what's happened with the younger brother as a way to express his, what he really feels himself. He says, how come you're making such a big deal about him? I'm the one who's always done what you've asked. I believe it reveals two really ugly things in the older brother that ultimately keep him from being home. The first one is judgmental righteousness. I believe that he is becoming very judgmental, saying, I'm better than him because I didn't do those things. He's becoming judgmental. He's, he's, he, it's a judgmental righteousness. And the second one is jealousy. If I can't have it, if I can't be celebrated, then no one can. No one can have it. I think it's really interesting. I, I, in, in doing some study for today, I came across uh, something that Matthew Poole's commentary says on, on jealousy. And it says, people's endeavoring to hinder others of such good things as they, des- are, as they themselves are desirous of. In other words, what he is saying is that is, is, as he sees his father celebrating his brother, if I can't be celebrated, then I don't want him to be celebrated. That is the definition of jealousy. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20, the apostle Paul includes jealousy in the list of the acts of sinful nature, which is so serious that in verse 21 of chapter 5 in Galatians, it says that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus, what Paul is saying to us is that literally if if we allow these acts of the sinful nature to have a place in our lives, we won't even go to heaven. That's how serious that jealousy is. So question... If home is really my family, how does that older brother get back home? How do we get home once we've taken the road of judgmental righteousness or or jealousy within our family lives? How do we get home because judgmental righteousness and jealousy will tear us apart? They break us apart as a family. How do we get there? So much so that Paul says we won't even make it to heaven. How do we get there? The second family member is the father. How did the father get home? You see, the father in this story, he got home. But he had a choice. Look at verse 20 again from our text in Luke 15. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, what if we could read the mind, the mind of the Father, and I know that this is impossible because this is a story that Jesus told. 
He didn't say that it happened. He told it as an illustration. But what if, in this story, we had the ability to read the mind of the father? The moment he saw the son, a long way off. The son knew that he was getting close to home. He probably could see the place, but dad saw the son while he was a long way off. Do you think that there might have been a moment where the father wondered, what am I going to do? Maybe there was just a second, a split second, where dad wondered about his choices. What do I do? Do I accept him? Do I reject him? Do you think that even for a moment that he hesitated, He could have waited for the son to make it all the way up the long road to the house. He could have waited until the son came to him and apologized. He could have demanded restitution. He could have said to him, boy, I gave you half of everything and you went out and blew it all. You deserve exactly what you get. But out of all the responses that he could have displayed, one of disappointment, one of anger, he could have said, that'll teach him. It could have been one of offendedness. He deserves what he gets. The father chose intentionally compassion. His son did not deserve this compassion or forgiveness, but yet the father was gracious and merciful, forgiving his son when he did not deserve it. Sometimes we combine or, or even mix up the definitions of grace and mercy. But grace is receiving something that we did not earn while mercy is getting, not getting what we actually deserve. The father had mercy on his son and the son received undeserved grace from his father. He didn't condemn him. He didn't berate him. He didn't keep score. He wasn't concerned about being seen as right, but he fully accepted the son back into relationship. And the best part about it is he didn't waste any time doing it. It was just there. It was the automatic response. I love my son. I accept him. Look at what he said to him. He didn't want to leave any time when that son got to him. He didn't want to leave any time for that son to remain as a destitute pauper. He calls out, he said, bring the best robe. Not a robe. The best robe. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means. But I know that best is a lot better than just anything else that's hanging in the closet. He said, bring the best robe. And put it on him. He says, I want you to bring the ring and put it on his finger. Now, what, what, what's the big deal about, about jewelry? Does that really matter? Yeah, it matters because more than likely, it was a signet ring that had the family emblem on it. He said, I want you to bring sandals for his feet. Why do sandals make a difference? Why is that a big deal? Well, sandals often were a difference between those who were slaves and those who were not. So by the father saying, bring the best robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals, what he is doing is he is declaring, you are mine. You are back in this family. You are not who you used to be. And more than likely, 
when the son lost all of his money, when he spent it all on wild living and prostitutes, what happened is he probably looked at that ring and said, well, it's time to sell it. He probably took that robe and sold it for one more meal. He probably took those shoes that he had and sold them as a last-ditch effort to help himself. So he comes back, has none of that, and his dad didn't do what many of us would do. Where is the robe that I gave you? Come on. <laughs> Some of you, if you think hard, you can actually hear yourself saying that. Do you know how important that ring was? Your grandfather gave me that ring. Come on. Man, we, that's something that I can hear us doing. Where are you? Do you know how many pairs of shoes I've had to buy you this school year? Can you not keep track of those things at least a little bit? I mean, those are the things that we tend to do. The father didn't ask those questions. He didn't even care. The father was accepting his son back as a son, not as a servant. And then it says that he kills the fatted calf. What's the big deal about the fatted calf? The fatted calf was being fed and fattened up for a celebration. That fatted calf was, was waiting for the right opportunity. And what the father said is, this is the right opportunity. It's time to celebrate. And resurrection was a good reason to celebrate because the son who was dead is now alive. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 the writer of Hebrews tells us that we should approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want you to know it doesn't matter how far away you are from God that God is there with open arms and he desires to give you his grace and his mercy. That's his desire. Some of you have been maybe far from home from your family. And I'm not just talking about miles. I'm talking emotionally. Maybe your relationship with family has been broken. I think this is a story that focuses on that. I think it's a great encouragement to us. Whether you are the prodigal. Or whether you are the brother. Or whether you are the father. It gives us great encouragement. But ultimately I think it's really heading somewhere other than that. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. The father didn't pause for a moment. At first sight, he ran to his son and he kissed him. And I want you to imagine with me for a moment if the father would have said, Nope, the family would be broken forever. But at that moment, it was restored. And number three is the prodigal. How did the prodigal get home? You see, one day, out of the blue, the prodigal decides that he's going to ask his dad for his inheritance early. If I would have done that to my dad, he would have laughed at me. If my children would do that to me, I would say, what inheritance? Not sure you're going to get anything. What does it mean? 
in essence, what it meant when that young, young man asked his dad for his inheritance early, I believe what he was really saying to him was this, I am no longer your son. The prodigal is quite literally breaking the relationship between the father and himself. By asking for his share of the estate earlier, uh, early when the father is still living, I, I believe he is literally saying, I wish you were dead. Now that would, that would hurt. That would hurt. And we're not just saying that in a, in a fit of rage. We're not just saying, you know, it's not just in that, that heat of the moment argument when a 14-year-old, when a you know, yells out at the top of their lungs in frustration, I wish you were dead. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about asking your, your father for half of what he owns, okay? You just want it early so you can get out. You see what I'm saying? We don't even need to read between the lines. We can tell how he felt. The circumstances that happened in his life, verse 13 of our text in Luke 15, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He literally packed up and he, he left home. He squanders his wealth in wild living. He reaches that distant land and he begins to engage in wild living that evidently includes life with prostitutes. Say, man, why did they include that? Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary points this out, that in symbolic language of Scripture, Fornication is a standing image of idolatry. They are, in fact, ever spoken of as one and the same sin. And so no longer is this a story about a family relationship, but it is a story about you and I and God. That's the story. And that when we go out and when we spend the inheritance of this life on wild living, what we are really engaging is in is idolatry. That we are away from Him. That we have broken that family relationship. Let me tell you something. Everything changed though when the money ran out and the famine came. And what that really means is that sin is going to take you farther than you want to go and it's going to cost you more than you'll ever want to pay in your life. But let me tell you three things that happened to this young man that really made a difference and that ultimately brought him back home. The first one is this, that he came to his senses. And it's true, friends, that there is pleasure in sin. The Bible says that, that, that sin, the pleasure of sin, lasts for a season. It says that it is fleeting. It is temporary, but it is, it does, it, it is real. There is pleasure in sin. What had been, though, a place of wild living for this young man now became a place of incredible poverty, a place of incredible lack because of the famine that was in the land, because of the drought that was in the land. Literally, all of his wealth had gone. All of those people that he had partied with, 
All of those people that had been so excited to hang out with him while he partied away his wealth, they were all gone because the money ran out. So all of those people that he thought were his friends were no longer his friends. He might have even thought to himself in the midst of that time period of his wild living, he may have looked at these people and said, now this is my real family. Those other people back home, man, they weren't my real family. This, this is my real family. I believe that the enemy would have us believe in a surrogate family in this world that is different from the family that God put us in, that we were born to, and ultimately the family of God, which is our real family. It says, though, that he came to his, sentence, or his senses. He, this lifestyle that he was living, it took everything from him. It gave nothing back. And I love what Barnes' uh, commentary on the Bible says, that, that this literally was such an impacting moment. It was as if a deranged person came to their senses. He was living a deranged life. And all of a sudden, he woke up out of that derangement. Other commentaries say it was like he was mad or insane when we get far from God and we don't hear his voice and when we have never come to that place of a relationship with him we can't imagine those that we know of that are that are serving God we can't imagine how in the world they can serve God literally it's it's like there's a disease in the mind and the Bible says that he came to his senses. I literally believe that that was a miraculous moment where God opened his eyes and he was able to see. Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, it says, To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Coming to his senses was a miraculous moment. I, I, I know people that that miraculous moment was so incredible that they went from a lifetime of heroin addiction and gang being in a gang to the point where they went into the ministry. And literally that moment of coming to their senses was one moment in time. There are those that have lived a life of addiction or a life of pornography and when the, God meets them and they come to their senses and he opens their eyes, it is literally like they, they, they change from being a madman to a, a sane person. He came to his senses. Number two, it says he got up and went back. After the miraculous moment of coming to his senses, he came up with a game plan. How many of you are good at coming up with a game plan? That's, that's, that's a good quality, okay? Coming up with a game plan is important. There are times that we, we come up with a game plan and we know that it's a good one and that's what this young man did. He came up with this game plan. He said, I'm going to set out. I'm going to go back. I'm going to tell my dad I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against him. I'm going to tell him that I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. Now, the, the problem is that when we come up with the game plan, it sounds really good in our heads, right? But then when we actually get there to that moment, 
and we think about saying it, all of a sudden it doesn't sound so good. And, and we get worried. But this young man, he had this game plan. And the problem with a good game plan is this. And a good game plan is necessary. It's a good thing. But the problem is this. It still requires what? Action. When you come up with that game plan, you still have to act it out. You still have to do it. And it says that this young man got up and went back. This wasn't like going to Scandia, okay? It's called a distant land. Scandia only seems like a distant land, okay? It's not really a distant land. We're talking a long way away. He had nothing. He had no resources. He had no food. He, he didn't have a robe, evidently. His ring is gone. His sandals are gone. He has to go a long distance, but he travels that distance. He, he literally gets up, and the action that's required, he, he does it. This is the most critical uh, moment of the story because he's at the bottom of the barrel. He has a plan, but he hasn't done anything, and then what does he do? He does it. I believe that there are a lot of people who are lost, whether it's from their family or whether it's from God. And they've had that come to their senses moment and they know the truth and they have the game plan, but they can't bring themselves to get up and go back. What would keep someone from doing that? I think it's only one thing. Foolish pride. When you know the truth, and the truth can literally, as Scripture says, make you free. When you know the truth, you have come to your senses. Why wouldn't you go back to a loving Heavenly Father? Why wouldn't you go back to your family and make things right? Ultimately, it is foolish pride that would keep us from doing that. Why would we want to stay in the distant land? Why would we want to stay in a place where we're starving, wishing that we could eat pig food, all the while realizing that there's so many uh, good things in our Father's house? I love the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you that are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I believe Jesus is talking to us when we're at that moment, our lowest moment, when we are starving, when we are filthy, when we are as far from God as we can get in that distant land. And he said, come to me, all you that are weary, all of you that have spent all of your resources, you you have nothing left. You're far from me, but come to me. Come to me. I'll tell you this about Jesus. You don't have to take very many steps until he will meet you where you are. So after he comes up with his plan, he gets up and he goes to his father. And number three, he admits that he's not worthy. The prodigal acknowledges that he sinned against heaven and against his father. He admits that he's no longer worthy to be called his son, and he, he asks to be a servant. I'm so glad that he was willing to lay down that foolish pride that could prevent him from getting back with his heavenly father, with getting back to his earthly father, rather. He didn't allow that foolish 
pride to prevent him from coming home. The prodigal confessed his sin. He repented to God and he repented to his father. He admitted that he didn't deserve to be a son. In John, John's letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we read this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I remember a story, and I close with this, from my mom. A family member that she was extremely close to was in hospice. And over the course of my mom's life, she had tried to tell this family member about Jesus. And the family member would always say, I don't want to hear anything about Jesus. I don't want anyone trying to convert me. And then as she went into hospice, my mom thought, I've got to try to tell her one more time. And so she approached her and she asked for permission to tell her about Jesus. And this family member said to her, I've lived my whole life not believing in God, not believing in Jesus. I'm not going to start now. I'm not going to turn my back on all of those things that I said and make a a decision that here at the last minute that I'm going to believe in God. Friends, home is not about being right. Home is about being together. You see, I could, I could call anywhere home as long as this woman and, and my kids, you know, at least come to visit me, I can call that home. It doesn't have to be at 209 Oak Ridge. It could be anywhere. Home isn't about being right. It's about being together. So what is home to you? How do you define home? Is it about being right or is it about being together? Ultimately, heaven has been created for you and I as our eternal home. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus said, My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. I believe that what Jesus is saying is, I'm getting home ready. The Bible calls this place a a place where we wander. We're called pilgrims in a foreign land. This world, the Bible says, is not our home. Our home is in eternity with our family, with Jesus our Savior, with a loving Heavenly Father, with the family of God, in a place that God has prepared for us. So this morning as I close, I just want to ask you this question. Maybe maybe you find yourself lost. Maybe it's, it's just lost in the sense that You feel separated from your family. And and again, I'm not talking about the miles. But relationally, maybe there's some brokenness. I want you to know that I believe that God cares about that. 
I believe that God desires that to be restored. Maybe you're not the prodigal. Maybe you're the older brother. Give up the, 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 the judgmental righteousness. Give up the jealousy. And God can restore that, those relationships. Maybe you're, the, maybe you're the parent. And you're wondering, how am I going to respond the moment they might turn to me? Am I, am I going to be able to really forgive them and receive them as my child again? Or am I going to be tempted to make them pay restitution somehow because I suffered so much? Maybe you're the prodigal. Maybe you've been away from your family because you chose to do it. God desires to restore that. And all of this applies spiritually if we're away from God. He waits for us literally with open arms and desires to allow us to come home. And all he's waiting for is for us to have that moment where we come to our senses. And I believe he's right there ready ready to help us come to our senses. In fact, I'd say we can't come to our senses without His help. If that's you today, I want you to know that He is here and He waits for you. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet all across this place, out in the hub as well as we bring our service to a close. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, as we close our service today, I pray for the one that might feel separated and broken from their family. And maybe this morning, these words of Jesus have really caused them to to have a sense of longing for home again. And you've convicted them that home is not a about being right, it's about being together. And Father, I pray that today there'll be a miracle that takes place. A miracle of coming to their senses and realizing that being away from home and feeling like you're right isn't as good as being together. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you say, Pastor, I've got some relationships in my family that are kind of like that, And I don't know what part of that equation you are, whether you're the older brother, the father, or the prodigal. But you say, Pastor, I need a miracle in my family, a miracle of coming to senses. And you need that. I want you to slip your hand up, if that's you. Just slip your hand up. Father, I thank you. That every one of these hands that is in this room that I see raised, every one of them, Lord, is a a relationship that you care about. It's a family that you care about. And I thank you, Lord. And I believe today, Lord, we as we move forward from this moment, we are going to pray that God will bring people in these families to their their senses. Amen? God, bring them to their senses. And I pray that the plan that that they get, that they'll act on that plan. And that that relationship would be restored in your name. You can put your hands down. Still with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, if I'm really honest with you, 
this story has evoked spiritual meaning to me. And either I find myself in the place where I'm the prodigal, or maybe I find myself as that older brother and I've, I've become judgmental towards those who are away from God. But whatever it is, the Holy Spirit is literally nudging you and, and, and saying, that's you today, whichever that is. Whether you're out in the hub or here in the sanctuary, if that's you, I want to pray for you before we leave. Would you slip your hand up just saying, Pastor, that's me. Pray for me today. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Father, I pray for these hands that are raised today. Lord, whether they're prodigals or whether they might be a, the older brother with that, that judgmental righteousness or that jealousy, Father, I pray that there would be that come to their senses moment right now. A come to their senses moment where they realize how far they are from family, where they realize how far they are from a loving Heavenly Father who has so much more for them. Father, I thank you that you are still in the business of bringing us to our senses, that you are there to bring that to us, that that moment, Lord, when our eyes can see, that moment when our heart can receive. And you are that loving Heavenly Father that restores us completely. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.